Since Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the European Union has positioned itself at the forefront of efforts to assist Ukraine and punish Russia. This, like in fairness most things, has proved easier said than done, not least because of the reliance of much of the EU on Russian energy. As the EU's High Representative for Foreign Affairs, Josep Borrell, noted this week, since the war began, the EU has sent €1 billion to Ukraine in foreign aid and €35 billion to Russia to buy its oil, coal and gas. As Russia's rampage in Ukraine has proceeded, Europe's long-standing reliance on Russia's fossil fuel resources has looked less and less sensible, dignified or tenable. It has caused particular angst in Germany, which, before the war, depended on Russia for 35% of its oil, 50% of its coal and 55% of its gas. Germany's government, under newish Chancellor Olaf Scholz, has acknowledged that this relationship cannot continue. Germany sent a significant signal early in the conflict by suspending the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would have conveyed Russian gas to Germany beneath the Baltic Sea. This week, Germany effectively nationalised the German subsidiary of the Russian energy giant Gazprom. Germany is not alone in suddenly looking elsewhere for means of keeping its lights on and its homes warm. The G7 this week pledged to expedite detachment from Russian supplies. But how quickly can any of this be done? Why wasn't it done before? And might a change to cleaner energy also mean cleaner geopolitics? This is The Foreign Desk. Germans, as anyone else in the world, is seeing the pictures from Butcher and is reading the stories from the atrocities committed by Russian soldiers. And this very much plays, of course, into the German public mood, saying we cannot be the ones who are actually paying for this by transferring millions of euro to Moscow, which then goes into the war machinery of Vladimir Putin. But I do think there might be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs lost. If Germans realize that, are they then so much supporting these really very uh, difficult decisions? That's a different question, I think. If you read through the history of the energy market and oil in particular, it is all about foreign policy. Our dependency on Russian energy is now causing trouble for Europe. And a lot of the commodity trade that goes around oil, gas, electricity, metals, it has to do with foreign policy. It's a reminder that oil is money and it's also a source of power. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, by Stephanie Bolson, UK and Ireland correspondent for Die Welt. Stephanie, first of all, how seriously do you think Germany's government is looking at the prospect of completely detaching the country from Russian energy? I don't think it really does, because bluntly, Germany is too dependent on Russian energy supplies. I mean, they have now decided to phase out coal, but Germany is very reluctant to seriously talk about oil and definitely not about gas. I mean, saying that, the supplies have substantially lessened already. So they used to be around 50% of gas consumed in Germany was Russian in 2021. It's already down to 40%. But the experts are saying it will take at least until 2024 to make Germany really independent of Russian supplies. 
There is opinion polling suggesting that the German public is quite significantly in favour of banning Russian energy imports, but is that at least partly to do with the fact that people may not be entirely aware of what the consequences of that would be? I do think so. I mean, I detect a bit of, well, let's call it an emotional aspect there, because, I mean, obviously... Germans, as anyone else in the world, is seeing the pictures from Butcha and is reading the stories from the atrocities committed by Russian soldiers. And this very much plays, of course, into the German public mood, saying we need to make sure that this stops and we cannot be the ones who are actually paying for this by transferring daily millions of euro to Moscow, which then goes into the war machinery of Vladimir Putin. But I do think, I mean, if you look at the numbers, and that, of course, is what the German economy, the German business community talks about, that there might be GDP loss of around 4%. If you really take this to the end, there might be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs lost. If Germans realize that, are they then so much supporting these really very uh, difficult decisions? That's a different question, I think. I mean, it's obviously the case that Germany's dependence on Russian energy is not new. But if we think back over the last few decades of it, does it strike you that it was a deliberate thought through policy? Or was it just one of those situations that evolved out of, I don't know, complacency, laziness, failure of imagination? I think like everything in life, it's always a mixture. It's uh, the result of events. And one important event, I think, is the 2011 Fukushima disaster, the nuclear power plant disaster in Japan, which, as you know, I mean, in Germany, nuclear power is something of a very difficult issue. And Angela Merkel at the time, in very short notice, decided to phase out nuclears in Germany. Actually, um, supposedly this year, the last three nuclear power stations are going off the grid. So Germany has a massive gap in energy provision domestically. So relying on Russian gas, therefore, was part of the policies by Angela Merkel. At the same time, she said, of course, on the long run, Germany wants to only have renewable energies. But then again, Germany has a very short coastline, doesn't have much water, doesn't have too much sun either. So you have to build the grids and the pipelines to get this renewable energy into the country. And of course, you have to build the storages. And Germany was very slow doing that. It was complacent, I think, because, yeah, you, you, you would get the gas from Russia. And at the same time, the old German thinking, mainly from the left, but also, of course, from the CDU, was that what they call Wandel durch Handel, so change through trade and strong partnership, dialogue, thinking, well, if you have such good and intense economic relations, then how on earth would Putin put that at risk? Well, Angela Merkel wasn't the only person to make what now appears to be a fairly drastic mistake in that regard. Have the last few weeks in Germany caused a reappraisal of her legacy? Do people think that this significantly blights her in retrospect? Yes, definitely. I mean, there is a reconsideration of Angela Merkel's merits. I mean, a lot of people already were very critical of her when she left back in September or rather in December when the new government came in. But I think people saw that she was not strategic enough, that she was actually not courageous enough. And if you talk especially to people in the military, whether it's in Berlin or in Brussels, you can almost sense the fury and the anger because she never in 16 years did any public speech that would make or give a clear vision of Germany's responsibility globally, also when it comes to military defense and security. So she was rather the one who 
actually uh, make the Bundeswehr, the German army, the armed forces much smaller. In Germany with Bundeswehr or with war and with the speed limits on the motorway, you lose elections. So you rather don't talk about it. Well, on the subject of former German chancellors, of course, it, it has also at least provided a possibly overdue embarrassment for Gerhard Schroeder, who was already involved with Rosneft and Nord Stream and had been nominated for the board of Gazprom in February in a masterstroke of timing. How big a scandal has that been? It's a big scandal, but then again, it's not really surprising. This is what Schröder has been doing from the first day he, he left office in 2005. I mean, allegedly, already before he lost the election, he had an office in Moscow and he was very close to Vladimir Putin and they are reportedly friends. So Schröder actually, until the day of the invasion started, 24 of February, he was really, he was getting at the German government, especially at the German foreign secretary, saying, how on earth can you first travel to Kiev and then to Moscow? You have to do it the other way around. And you are sable rattling and you are provoking the Russians. So he was very outspoken. Then he became very quiet. And then out of the blue, he traveled to Moscow because he thought he could convince Putin to stop the war. Of course, that didn't happen. So it made it even more difficult for him. And in the last days and weeks, actually, you haven't seen anything of Gerhard Schröder. If we look then at the current occupant of that job, Olaf Scholz, what has he said about how Germany needs to rethink its energy future? He has said and decided quite crucial things in many aspects, especially when it comes to military. As you know, shortly after the invasion, he put 100 billion euro into an extra fund for defense. But then, of course, also he has agreed to the EU measures to phase out the coal now. He has also announced that Germany will, as quickly as possible, build terminals for liquefied gas. They have very strong, again, it's more on the European level, agreements with the US. It's not realistic to think, as I said in the beginning, that you can phase out gas so quickly. But yeah, this is where Germany is going. And now I don't think they have any alternatives. They have to do it and quickly. And it will cost a lot. It will cost jobs. It will cost GDP. And it's a very, very difficult time for Germany. But just finally, and I suppose we've seen one illustrative example of how Germany is thinking, which was this takeover of Gazprom Germania. Do you get the sense now that Germany has decided that there is only one direction of travel here, that there is no point in hedging on any future relationship with Russia, that that's now basically over? Yes, I do think so. And actually, the taking over of the Germania or the Nord Stream Pipeline 2 consortium That's also, of course, a precautionary measure. And the German Minister for Economy, Habeck, he has already triggered the first level of emergency planning, contingency planning, if there is no gas coming anymore. So I think the government, I mean, they have been very slow, but now they they do understand how serious the situation is. They are taking the precautions they have to take. And yes, the thinking is that this is the turning point in, in German and European history, and things will never be as they were before. Stephanie, thank you. That was Stephanie Bolson, UK and Ireland correspondent for Die Welt. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Daniel Jürgen, a Pulitzer Prize-winning energy expert, vice chairman of S&P Global, and author of The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. And joining me from London is Javier Blas, energy and commodities columnist at Bloomberg and co-author of The World for Sale, Money, Power and the Trades Who Barter the Earth's Resources. 
Javier, I'll start with a drastic hypothetical. What would actually happen if Europe as a whole announced that starting tomorrow, it was ending all Russian energy imports immediately? Wow, the consequences of something as radical as that will be quite catastrophic for Europe. We will see within days probably shortages of gasoline and diesel, so we will have to ration how much fuels we can take on our cars and our trucks. Some countries, particularly Germany, will struggle to keep the lights on because they rely so much on coal and gas from Russia for electricity production. And also, and crucially, a lot of the heavy and energy-intensive industry in Europe will have certainly to shut down on reduced activities. We will go to something that only people that went through the crisis in the 70s remember, that is a a three-day week. That will be the only way to cope if we were to do it just all in one go and overnight. So just to follow that up, you don't think it's quite as simple as has been suggested in a few quarters as turning down our thermostats a few degrees to save Ukrainian lives? Andrew, let me jump in there. It's absolutely not simple to do it. It would be a vast disruption. It would be a bigger disruption than the 1970s. You would have a deep drop in GDP if you did it like that. And you would have protests on the streets by truckers and motorists and other people. It would be destabilizing for the politics of Europe. That comparison that Javier raised there, and I'll put this to you, Dan, with the big oil shocks of the early 1970s, do you think we are potentially on the verge of something that serious? I think that you have to think about it as what the risk is and is there a potential. I'm not going to say that it will happen, but I think that the possibility is really there as this war goes on. And, you know, it's always, whether you live through it or not, the iconic comparison is the 1970s, this potentially, and I only emphasize potentially, could be worse because this involves not only oil, but it involves natural gas, it involves coal, and it involves two countries that are the nuclear superpowers. You didn't have all of that going on in the 1970s. So you have to be very mindful of the risk and that Putin has not only launched a war, but he's created a vast and uncertain disruption in global energy markets. Javier, if we think then about not doing this tomorrow, but trying to do this more gradually, how quickly could Europe get itself to a point where it wasn't reliant on Russian energy? How, how quickly, for example, could Germany replace its supplies of Russian gas with perhaps liquid natural gas from the United States? Well, the first thing that Germany will need to do is to get a regasification unit to be able to import the LNG, which at the moment they don't have any. They may get a floating one, which is basically a vessel attached to a port that does the job, but it's a small one. It's a temporal measure. They will need to import via other countries, France, Spain, the Netherlands, but then you get into pipeline problems to transfer the gas from those countries into Germany. This is going to take time, and the Germans have said that they can perhaps do it in two years. Oil and call can be done quicker, but all of that will be still disruptive. It will be significantly expensive and it's harder to do that it seems. But certainly we can send a signal and say we are going to do this amount less of gas or oil or coal every month to reduce the flows from Russia and, and therefore to hurt the Kremlin financially, which at the moment Europe has not done. 
Dan, what do you think? Does the speed with which the United States, for example, has become a major LNG producer teach us anything about how quickly a major economy can reorient itself if it's really determined to do that? I think it is quite remarkable. And it's one of the things that I wrote about in in the new map, which is amazing. The U.S. only sent its first cargo of LNG in 2016. And in 2022, the U.S. is going to be the largest exporter of LNG in the world. And that's where I really got the idea of the title of the book, The New Map, because who thought about the U.S. shipping energy to Europe? Without U.S. LNG right now, it would be a much tougher situation for Europe. About half of the LNG that Europe is now receiving comes from the United States. And Andrew, in the first half of January, there was a time when actually the U.S. LNG to Europe was greater than the volumes of gas coming from pipelines from Russia. So it is a big deal, and it shows it can be done. But a point Avier said, you know, these things don't happen overnight because you're talking about a lot of engineering and a lot of scale. Javier, one of the things we wanted to address in this episode was whether the questions that have been raised about the West's reliance on Russian energy might prompt a bit of wider thinking about who else we rely on for our energy. And if you're looking at this from Europe's point of view, does it have options about just purchasing from what we might think of as entirely ethical suppliers? Could Europe realistically decide we're just not going to do business with people at this level from countries which do not share our values? No, I don't think that you could do that completely. You are going to rely on an international market, on countries that may not share the values that Europe has, may not share every human right that Europe defends. But the way that natural resources are distributed around the world is just, you know, they are not all in friendly countries that share our values and read the same books that we read. They are elsewhere. And it's not just fossil fuels. If we are thinking about the next revolution, the energy transition, a lot of the metals that we are going to need are going to be located in very difficult places. I mean, cobalt is an ingredient that is absolutely key on every battery for electric vehicles, and that's going to come from the Democratic Republic of Congo and from very remote areas of the DRC, and that is problematic. So no, Europe cannot just turn around and say, we are not going to buy from people that we don't like. They're going to have to buy for some people that may not completely share. But Europe can decide that it can buy for more friendly nations. It doesn't really need to be buying from Russia, which at the moment is the only country right now which is on a war against another European country. Dan, it has been suggested in the last six weeks or so that perhaps the Western world, Europe in particular, has not used its economic relationship with Russia to assert itself sufficiently where things like human rights and values are concerned. Is that a reasonable argument? I mean, I know we are where we are, but if we think back 20 years, could there have been an opportunity for Europe to impose greater conditions on Russia attached to building that sort of relationship? I don't think so. I think, in a way, Andrew, to turn your question around, the idea of building the economic links with Russia was to bring it into the global market, to integrate it with the world community. And, you know, I think that the growth of pursuing trade, as Germany did during Soviet days, helped to bring down the Berlin Wall by opening it up. So, you know, there's a question of Putin. 
But, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people working in Russia who worked for Western companies. And Western governments encouraged this because they thought Putin or not Putin, you wanted to establish a integration, a connection with the rest of the world rather than see a reimposition of an Iron Curtain. Obviously, with Putin in his bunker dreaming about conquering Ukraine has disrupted all of that. But Russia, you know, look at the flow of students, of young people, of learning about the world that was going on. You were creating an, an, an international community that would in time have a, an impact, but it collided with the reality of the control that Vladimir Putin has over Russia and this obsession he has with Ukraine. In the new map written before this, I said that the issue that was going to blow up between Russia and the West was Ukraine because Vladimir Putin has refused to accept the outcome and the settlement that came with the end of the Cold War, although he's done very well out of the outcome of the Cold War because he became president of Russia. <laughs> Javier, if we think about the same thing in a different way, if it's possibly over-optimistic to believe that we can only buy what we require for energy from people we'd like and people we get naturally along with, should this crisis have reminded nations that there's a bigger overlap than they might have wanted to think between national security and energy security? They go hand in hand. I'm very happy to defer to Dan, who has wrote extensively about, about this. But if you read through the history of the energy market and oil in particular, it is all about foreign policy. The reason that the United States is so interested in the Middle East is certainly about oil. Our dependency on Russian energy is now causing trouble for Europe. And a lot of the commodity trade that goes around oil, gas, electricity, metals, it has to do with foreign policy. It's a reminder that oil is money and is also a source of power. You cannot dissociate energy and particularly oil with our foreign policy, no way. And Andrew, I think there was a kind of amnesia about energy security that it fell off the agenda, that it was just kind of taken for granted so that one could just think about scenarios for the future, but not think about energy security. But it really does matter. And I was just looking at the new energy security document from the British government Boy, that's a change from what you would have seen a year ago. They're talking about new supplies from the North Sea. They're obviously talking about offshore wind, but concerned about security. Mm -hmm. Here's France, which was talking about winding down its nuclear industry and now uh, is talking about six new nuclear power plants and perhaps another eight. And there's Germany talking about energy security. So it's very much back on the agenda. And I think the amnesia about energy security is over because you can't achieve your other objectives without energy security. There's obviously an aspect to the climate change question, which is very much a national security question as well. But on the thought that brings them both together, should this be a moment at which governments with that capacity think much more seriously about cleaner energy and about renewable energy, because it might ultimately make governments more self-sufficient and therefore less beholden to the dreadful people from whom we've been buying fossil fuels? I don't know how governments can think any more seriously about renewable energy than they already are. That's what's happening. And, you know, you look at the British security, energy security document, it talks about greatly increasing offshore wind. But by the way, you know, you talk about big oil. Well, there's big shovels. You're going to be doing a lot of mining, huge amount of mining in order to support the move towards wind and solar. And you're going to be moving a lot of earth to do that. 
and that's going to be in other countries as well. But I think that your basic question, I think governments are spending a lot of money on it. And by the way, the supply chains are really strained. And as I understand, from one of the big wind companies told me to get the permit to build a wind turbine in Europe can take up to seven years. So there are obstacles there as well. But I think people are going to go down both tracks. And that's exactly what we're going to see. Britain is going to license more activity in the North Sea, but it's also going to step up offshore wind. Javier, if we manage to arrive at a future in which energy is more clean energy than it currently is, if we're more able to rely on renewable energy than we currently do, how much do you think, if at all, that will change foreign policy? Is it too much to hope that, if you like, cleaner energy might actually lead to cleaner geopolitics? You will resolve sort of the geopolitics of the fossil fuels, but regardless of what happened with the energy transition, this is going to be a very long process. And I think that we are going to be relying on oil from the Middle East for a lot longer than people think. And that I mean post-2050. So this idea that we are going to just say goodbye to Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Iraq and Iran, I think is it's wrong. We are going to be relying on them for a long time. And then, you know, new challenges are going to be coming. All of a sudden, we will be dealing with the problems of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the source of 50% of our cobalt. And it's a country that very few diplomats really have to spend today, anytime. But if we are all of us driving electric vehicles in the next 30 years, we are going to get very used to the politics of the DRC. And they are messy and they are complex and they are difficult. So you will replace one sort of geopolitics with new geopolitics. We will become very used to talk about the new elections in Chile and what is going to happen with the mining industry there, because the country is going to be a huge source of copper and lithium. And does anyone on global geopolitics, particularly on energy geopolitics, spend today much time thinking about what is going on in Santiago de Chile? Very few. But in the future, we will have to. So new politics will replace the old geopolitics. But let's not kid ourselves. That is not going to happen in the next couple of years. That's going to happen perhaps in the next 30 or 40 years. Let me just jump in there because we're doing a study that uh, we'll have done in a few weeks that exactly bears out what Avier is saying about what the copper demand will be in order to meet the 2050 goals. And it will make the politics of Chile and who's the president very significant. And there's one other dimension as well. Andrew, if you read the documents about critical minerals and metals from the US government or from the EU, there's one other country they talk a lot about directly and indirectly, and it's called China. And so there's going to be a new geopolitics of renewable energy and it's going to involve the type of countries that Javier is talking about. It's also going to involve relations with China. And what I call the WTO consensus is over. China and the U.S. describe each other as strategic rivals and say they're engaged in great power competition. So politics is not going to all be milk and honey as we make this transition. And Javier, on that thought, I'll, I'll ask you for some closing words as we are running out of time. Is it the case then that even if the energy changes, that the politics will stay broadly the same? 
I'm afraid so. I think that we are going to still depend on energy as a source of political trouble and, and geopolitical interest. And if today we have the American might protecting the sea lines in the Middle East used to keep the flows of oil open, in the future it will be perhaps the, the American might protecting the roads and railways of Africa so we get the essential minerals that we need for the electric vehicles. It's just going to be different. But in some ways, we have seen this in the past. We have a sort of geopolitics links to the coal industry and where coal was the dominant source of energy in the world that was replaced by the geopolitics of oil. And that will come with the geopolitics of electric vehicles and the electrification of everything. But coal, and that's my final thought, is a very good reminder of how long an energy transition takes. We have been transitioning out of coal for probably more than a century. And coal in 2022 is still going to be the source of 40% of the world's electricity. And that is an indication of how long it takes to move from one source of energy to another and to another. Dan and Javier, thank you both very much for joining us. That was Vice Chairman of S&P Global, Daniel Jürgen. Dan's book, The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations, is available now in paperback. And thanks also to Bloomberg's Javier Blas. His book, The World for Sale, Money, Power and the Trades Who Barter the Earth's Resources, is also available in paperback. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy Evans. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.